Shall we begin? Why not? Welcome to Frankie Sense and More. It's like she's got a whole lot of goodness for you with a little bit of sass. Frankie, did you just say... She sure did. Not to mention... Along with... Whoops. Join us now as Frankie Picasso and her new co-host mix it up with authors, musicians, and interviews with world-changing people. Let's begin now. Okay, let's begin now, because it only makes sense. Hey, 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 this is Frankie Picasso, and welcome to Frankie's Sense and More. This week... Arlie, you're back in the co-pilot's chair, and I love that. It's always fun to have you around. Thank you. Yeah. You know, we were chatting about the show the other day, and you asked me, what are we going to talk about? And I said, you know, I don't know. And then you threw out one word. You said nourishment. And, I mean, there's so much to nourishment in there, you know? So I, I thought about it, and I said, nourishment. What can I say about that? But, you know, I do find that I have a few things to say. When am I ever at a loss for words? Uh, the first thing that came to mind, of course, is that I've been sick now for seven days, and that's highly unusual for me. And I suppose that uh, might be where you were going at first. I don't know, because I think I brought up juicing. Uh, because I need to nourish my body with vitamins and juices and plants and uh, all that good stuff our cells love to eat up. And uh, <laughs> remember, a few weeks ago, I told you I was watching Joe Cross's documentary, Fat, Sick, and Nearly Dead. Yeah. Joe, I need you. Please call us. I need you. I need your motivation. You know, go. Th- he went... What did he do? 60 days on juice. Oh, my God. I don't know how the man did it. But he looks fantastic. So something that's really been on my mind, though, is this this thought about nourishing our spiritual self. You know, the past month with the parachutings and San Bernardino and the Syrian refugee crisis, I think many of us are feeling depleted. You know, our souls feel like they've shrunk or dimmed. And and now's not the time for that to happen because I think each of us needs to really nourish our spiritual self so that we can be strong and shine brightly in the world. Now, Arlie, why do you think we need to shine brightly in the world? I'm putting you on the spot. No, no. I... My my point about nourishment is that we forget that we need to nourish our souls, nourish our spirits, and and a lot of that come it comes from music, it comes from chasing our dreams, it comes from being able to put ourselves out there to things that we don't think we can do. Right. And, and, and my point about why do we need to do it is because it really is, there's so much negativity out there and that's driving fear in so many people right now that if we can vibrate at a higher resolution than the fear is, if we can, you know, raise our positive self um, and help flatten out that negativity or overcome that negativity, then it really helps the rest of uh, the world to start to heal and nourish our souls. So I think that's um, something that we can all do. Absolutely, our, and I, ourselves and, I, and each other. I think because because of modern communication. I mean, if you watch Twitter, if you watch Facebook, if you if you search the internet, all we see are the horrible things that are going on in the world, and it's really easy to get caught up in that and forget to nourish ourselves so that we too can be a positive influence in what's going on. Yeah, you know, some of you sent me um, three articles this week or three and jokes and blah, blah, blah about, you know, Muslims and Syrian refugees. And, and, I, and I don't open them. And I just sent it back and I said, please don't send me this stuff because I don't care if, it, if you think it's funny or whatever. Um, I'm not going to contribute to 
any more negativity. I'm not even going to read it. And even if I laughed at it, which I probably wouldn't, it's not funny to me. Like, just so please don't send it. And, and don't feel, you know, like I slighted you, whatever you like, you know, you can have. But um, I, I'm really not excited about it. So that was something that I did for myself because one thing that um, one of the greats said, uh, you know, who just passed away um, recently was, was, if you can't change the news, don't watch it. And and that made such an impact in my life, you know, um, because, because it's so like people who watch CNN and they, they replay and they replay and they replay all this horror in front of you all day long and you get caught up in that and it gets really, really hard to get away from that. Um, the third nourishment I wanted to talk about was um, earth. You know, we need to nourish our planet and its fragile ecosystem. It's out of balance. And if you listen to the show, then you know that I always align the show with a global goal, the United Nations Global Goals. And today is number 14, and that's life below water. You know, the United Nations already has pledged that by 2030, they're going to conserve and sustainably use the oceans, seas, and marine resources for sustainable development. It really freaked me out um, to, to learn, and I was watching a show this week, I probably shouldn't have watched it, but... 30% of marine habitants have now been destroyed. Like those animals will never come back or fish or whatever, you know, they were. They'll never be on earth again. I mean, that just makes me want to cry. Yes, and, and you know what? It's, it's really hard sometimes for us to imagine how impactful that is to our independent lives because we get caught up in, in the locale. And in... In reality, every change on this planet affects every human being. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So now that we're talking about the oceans and our guest is here, (laughs) it's a perfect (laughs) segue into introducing you to her. Jillian Morris-Brake also known as Shark shark Girl. I love it, Sharky. She she was born and raised in Maine, and she states that her love for the ocean started at an early age and has continued to play a major role in her adult life. And today, she is a marine biologist, a shark advocate, scuba instructor, explorer, educator, videographer. Jillian is, she says, unabashedly obsessed with sharks and a lover of all things water, and I can certainly understand that. And she has spent thousands of hours in the field working and diving with sharks across Across the globe. How exciting is that? She's also the executive director of Oceanic All Stars, a conservation media group, and that she's fortunate enough to combine her love for these for these mammals and animals in the sea with her passion for photography and, and video and, and writing. I think that's awesome. Uh, she's worked with National Geographic, Discovery, BBC, Animal Planet, PBS, I mean, just to name a few. Um, everybody that we know, anyway, and watch. I think that's pretty exciting. And in 2012, Jillian launched Shark for Kids. And with this goal, she wanted to create the next generation of shark advocates, which we, we can only do really through education, outreach, and adventure. So welcome, Shark Girl. Welcome, Jillian. Oh, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here um, and, and speak with you guys today. So thank you for having me. It sounds like you've got like one of the coolest jobs in the world. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky. I absolutely love my job um, and it's exciting. It's interesting and it's, it's amazing to, you know, wake up every day and love what you do. So, you know, you're in the ocean all the time. You're, you're with these animals and um, how many species have you seen? yourself die off since you started diving 
Um, well, it depends on the area you're in. It really depends. I mean, there's um, some amazing spots that are still very, very healthy. Um, marine protected areas have been put into place. So even populations of specific animals that are struggling, um, we've seen them come back through better management and, and regulations for protecting species. Um, and sometimes protecting uh, an apex predator like a shark impacts mm -hmm. the entire system. Um, mm -hmm. The same thing if you remove apex predators, you affect it. But if you also support their populations, you can have a, a very positive impact on the entire um, kind of food chain ecosystem in that region. So, um, you know, I've been in areas of Indonesia where there's dynamite fishing has happened and oh. there are no sharks left and the corals are dead and dying. There are very few fish. So it's a it's a very real thing. Um, and seeing it is it's shocking. It's terrible. Um, but it's a very real thing that does happen. So what is it? the important role of the shark in in the ocean like wh why is it so important well um not every shark is an apex predator they're not always at the top of the food chain but mm -hmm. the role as an apex predator is really keeping the food chain balanced um okay. it's as simply as they're eating other animals in the system which is keeping a balance of the amounts of specific animals so the populations and when you remove sharks from an area the populations of other animals can start to explode. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a predator-prey relationship. You remove the predators, the prey populations go up, they don't have enough food, they crash, and it, it breaks, the cycle breaks down. Um, right. Sharks also eat injured, sick, dying animals, so they keep the oceans clean, they keep disease from spreading. So really you have these animals that are keeping the oceans healthy, clean, and balanced. So it's it's not that the other animals aren't playing a role, but it's just that this role is so significant to the health of our oceans um, that it has a much larger impact when we remove um, large numbers of these animals from an area. Like I know on land that, you know, the eagles were really struggling because they were, eat, you know, they eat all the other animals like, like sharks do. And because of that, um, and they eat from the land and they eat from the water, the, you know, all the poisons and all, you know, that we've done to, to both um, really have been affecting them. Now, what about the sharks? Are they able to metabolize any of that or are they really feeling the effects of um, all, all the but pollution? Yeah, well, something a great example of that is mercury that ends right. up in the water, and and fish consume it, and they can't they can't get rid of it. it stays in the tissue, um, so then larger fish eat it, and it's it what we call bioaccumulates. It adds up mm -hmm. through the system. So you have large animals at the top: whales, dolphins, tuna, marlin, mm -hmm. sharks. And they have high concentrations of mercury. Not every species, um, but it, it does exist. And so now if you turn around and people are consuming shark, it can actually make us really sick. So, you know, some of the things that you can do is, is make choices about the seafood that you eat. And one thing to consider is um, consuming these top predators can actually um, make us sick because right. they do not get rid of that mercury. I actually I stopped eating tuna like a number of years ago after the documentary. I, I can't remember the name of the documentary, but it was a guy who, who um, and I can't remember his name, I'm sorry, but he was the one who trained Flipper. And then he, he decided that he thought that that was really cruel. And he started going to Japan and trying to save the dolphins and, and I guess the sharks and the whales that all get caught up in that, uh, the big hunt. Yeah. And, and, and so it came out that, that tuna was like one of the number one sources of mercury poisoning. Because it is a yeah, big, that, it's a big fish. Yeah, they eat all the little stuff. Yeah, and they're, um, you know, they're also being heavily overfished because they're prized in certain fish markets. And Rico Berry was the the guy that did that. And, yes, um, that's yeah, right. Yeah, there's been some really powerful documentaries that have come out, and I think 
whether it's sharks or tuna or whatever animal it is, it's, it's just, you know, um, I, I heard the gentleman mention it earlier, we have an impact and, and every action we take is going to have a positive or a negative impact. And it, it's much larger than just our own little existence. So, you know, it's things like people say to me, well, I, if I stop eating tuna, what's, what difference is that going to make? Well, it, it is because then you, you know, you stopped and every one of us, yeah, we're one person, but we each take a, you know, make a choice and, and change something. And that starts to add up. And then you tell your friends, uh, right. your family, I'm going to have to stop you here because we've got to go to a commercial break. But how many of you are having tuna tonight? I wonder. We'll be back. Stay, stay tuned and stay close. Heck no, we're just getting warmed up. Frankie Sense and more will be right back after we pay the bills. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it's time for the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 central on Toginhead.com. Marla believes that with the right mindset, anything is possible. Join us as successful life coach Marla Tabaka inspires you and her clients to explore, discover, and live your dreams by developing what she calls the Million Dollar Mindset. Marla will inspire you to take action on your dreams and reveal secrets to success that will help you realize your own unique power. Tune into the Million Dollar Mindset for heartwarming stories with Marla Tabaka. Learn tips and tricks to building a successful business and unlock the secrets to creating a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. For more information on the Million Dollar Mindset, go to our website, MarlaTabaka.com. That's M-A-R-L-A-T-A-B-A-K-A.com. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 p.m. Central on Togenet.com. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Bicycling for fitness is hot right now, and people all over the world are pedaling for fun and fitness. Whether you are cycling indoors using a stationary bike or biking outdoors, there are some precautions that you need to be aware of. Injuries are common with cyclists, even though it's a non-impact activity. IDEA reports that some studies show that 50% to 70% of bicyclists report back and neck pain. People who ride with poor posture often experience hand numbness and knee pain. Proper positioning is vital. You don't want the seat too far forward, too low, or too high. The same is true with the handlebars. Position properly and cycle yourself to fitness. And always wear a helmet. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. Like us on Facebook at Fitness Minute with Annette Hammond. And welcome back to Frankie Sense and More. In the studio today, we have Allison Carmen, we have Kara Aradis, and we are speaking to Jillian Morris. Welcome again. Jillian Arley has a question about impact. Yeah, I, I was just wondering how, how much impact a single person has in reference to what we eat. For example, the amount of fishing that goes on in the world's oceans how much do we as an individual consume that makes an impact on that environment? Well, it, again, there are a lot of variables because it, it depends on how much you're consuming and the types of, of animals you're actually consuming. So if you think about one of the examples I love is shrimp. Um, mm -hmm. So for every pound of shrimp that you find in the grocery store or the fish market, um, there were probably 17 to 20, depending on where you look, pounds of bycatch. These were animals and things that were, were not the targeted species, but came up in the big trawl, the big uh. net that dragged for the shrimp, and they get thrown back. 
So these wow. animals, you know, they might be alive, they might not, but there's a lot of bycatch. So sure. it really, you know, that's, that's a huge impact. So it's, it depends on what part of the world the, the you know, the type of seafood, um, that we're eating, but it's, person to person, we're putting a lot of demand on the oceans, much more than the ocean can really overall can sustain. Um, you know, there's been estimates I've seen by 2050, there won't be any fish left in the sea. Oh my um, gosh. That's scary. I live on an island. It's really scary. Yeah. It's, I mean, you might think, you know, people, someone who lives in Idaho might say, well, why do I care? Well, the ocean. No, we care. For, yeah, yes, exactly. For everybody. <clears throat> but, yeah. but Jillian, you know, I, I'm wondering, um, about that nuclear reactor from Japan and the effects it's having and still having on wild, you know, on the ocean and wildlife and everybody, you know, everybody around it, I guess, in general. Um, what is going on? Is there any way to fix this? Is, do you think that these, re these goals by the United Nations are realistic? Do you think that they can save the ocean? I think it is realistic. And I think that, you know, I work with kids all the time. And every time I get frustrated seeing, you know, 100 million sharks are killed every year and tuna are being wiped out and these big predators and, and the rainforest. And I mean, you start taking it all in and you kind of right. just want to sit and cry. Like it, it's yeah. horrible, but you can't do that. You have to stop and say, right, one thing at a time. And, you know, I speak with kids and they're excited. They're making differences. They're recycling. They're, they're teaching their parents about sharks and, and it gives me hope. So I genuinely believe that we can make changes, especially the future generations. They're already doing it. They're starting much younger than any of us did. Um, and they're making direct impacts now. And so I genuinely believe that it, it can be turned around. I honestly do. Well, and, and um, it, uh, give us an example of what kids can do themselves to help make an impact. Um, well, you like one of the things is even making posters at school. Something as simple as making a shark poster and getting other students excited, realizing they're not man-eating monsters. They're amazing animals. So even just a favorite shark poster. Um, kids bringing reusable water bottles to school. That's a simple, easy thing. Talking to mom and dad. Right. And and saying, you know, did you know about this or not buying shark products? There's lots of things made from sharks. If we don't yeah. buy them. You know, companies aren't going to make them. So there's a lot of things that kids, no matter whether they're five or 15, that they can actually do that does have an impact. And it's, you know, that um, Racing Extinction, the movie that just came out, start with one thing. And it's a very simple statement, but it's very powerful. Kara, you have a question. Yeah, uh, I actually live in San Francisco, and one of my favorite places out here is the Monterey Bay Aquarium, and I love the seahorses down there. They actually have Seafood Watch consumer guides about what you might want to buy at the store, what you might not want to buy at the store with regard to seafood, and I was wondering, Jillian, if you have an opinion about that, if you've seen those guides and what you think of them. I think they're awesome. Um, I, I too, um, used to, I've lived in San Francisco and have spent a lot of time at that aquarium. I love it. Um, I think the the reality is, is now people are going to eat seafood. Um, if we stopped eating it, that would be ideal, but that's, that's not the reality. Um, I live on an Island and people here eat seafood. It's, it's a sustainability, it's a fisheries, it's part of the economy. Um, and so, you know, 
that's not a realistic thing is to end it all together. It, it would make a huge difference, but people eat seafood. So how can we make smart choices? And I think giving people an app, um, something they can look at, take with them in their wallet um, to look at and make more sustainable, responsible choices. One, it's an easy thing to do. And two, it's our responsibility. We, we can control what we spend our money on and what we consume. We have that choice. We're lucky most of us have that choice. And if we do, it's kind of our responsibility to make a sustainable choice. Mm, yeah, I like that. I think of it as voting with my dollars. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Allison, I think you had a question. I was just curious if we should stop eating seafood entirely. And um, she just answered that, that that's what would be ideal, but maybe it's not a reality because I would like to reduce it based on our conversation, but Mm -hmm. I don't know how much of an impact that would, you know, how much I could reduce it that would have an impact. Yeah. I mean, but it's, again, it's, it's one simple thing. Like I haven't eaten shrimp in probably, I don't know, 10 to 12 years and I don't eat tuna. Um, I, I certainly don't eat shark and, mm-hmm. um, but I do eat small bits of seafood. Um, I know where it comes from. I want to ha- I want to know how it was caught, who caught it, how, you know, and that's right. the choice that I've made. Um, but yeah, definitely reducing it if you can. Um, and again, making smart choices. Um, we're usually pretty lucky. A lot of us have a choice and, well, what am I going to eat for dinner tonight? Oh, I can go to the grocery store and get Mm -hmm. it. Um, not everybody has that choice. So the people that are fish is their only option or they're not going to eat. Obviously that's a different situation, but for, for those of us that aren't in that, then we can make a difference. And even just choosing to reduce it, you know, maybe eat it only once a week or what types we eat that does have an impact. And I won't eat farmed fish. Mm -hmm. I only want to eat you know, wild fish. And, and I guess one last question for you, Jillian, um, because this really, but people love to say, Oh, you know, the doom and the gloom, the oceans are going to be gone by 2050. Right. But what can we, you know, really do in order? Okay. That's about the fish and everything, but what can we do to help the ocean? What can we do to make sure that, um, we, we don't say goodbye to such an incredible, you know, it's half the earth. Well, if you, you know, if you look, if you look at the amount of, of, garbage yeah. that we put in the oceans. I mean, the amount of plastics and such. And one thing we can all do is reduce our usage of plastics and packaging and, and things that get dumped in the oceans as well. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I would say is the plastic. Um, mm-hmm. You think about even 10 years ago, we didn't have as many water bottles. I mean, plastic water bottles and, and Ziploc and the amount of packaging that things come in mm-hmm. is shocking. And, you know, I, I've seen plastic wrapped bananas. Like I've, I don't need <laughs> my banana to be plastic wrapped and, right. and no one needs that. We've been, you know, I, I grew up eating bananas without that and it was just fine. So I think it's every day we really, really need to be conscious and aware of, of what, we're throwing away and where we're throwing it and what happens once we throw it away. Like we throw it in the trash can and we don't think, but that has a story and plastic doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear. Right. So, you know, if we can reduce that, um, and you know, it's, it seems cliche, reduce, reuse, recycle, but it's really, really important. And that's, you know, for the oceans and for the planet in general, we have to create less trash and we have to use less plastic wise words. Thank you, Jillian, so much. Stick around with us. We're going to talk to Allison Carmen now because, you know, for 15 years, Allison had a career as an attorney and she was forced to accept that she was an addict. Oh my gosh. But it wasn't work or drugs or alcohol or even gambling that she was hooked on. It was certainty. Every moment of her life, Allison desperately sought to know or predict what would happen next. 
trapping her in a spiral of anxiety, doubt, and fear. And she only found hope and freedom when she discovered the life-altering mindset of the concept of maybe. And she wrote a book. She's titled it The Gift of Maybe. And, and I think, you know, Allison, that this book provides a wonderful service and coping mechanism for, you know, the tens and thousands of people that follow you. I would say. And, and today, I th- did you give up the law? And, and you're working now as, as a coach and um, a blogger and helping all these people uh, with, with the same kind of addiction. Because there, I can see how there's so much fear to that. Tell us about your experience. Well, I always say, like you said, I was addicted to certainty. If I didn't know what was going to happen next, I projected things were going to be bad or they weren't going to work out. And I think a lot of us have it in society. We're so afraid that we're not okay. And what we do in order to make ourselves feel better is we write stories about what needs to happen for us to to be okay and to feel safe and to feel secure. We might say, I'm going to have my job until I retire. I'm going to have this amount of money in the bank till I'm 50. My child's going to go to this college. So her life will be great. And then we hold on to these stories if that there are realities, but then life takes another turn and the stories don't work out. And then we fall apart and we say, life's not working out. And we forget that that was just our story of how we thought things were going to be. And this was my life. I kept writing story after story because I was so scared that I wasn't okay. And my grand story was I was going to grow up, I was going to get a job at a large law firm, make a lot of money, marry this great guy, the balloons were going to come down, and I would have no more worries the rest of my life. And I did all those things, but the second day of work, my office mate comes in, I'm at that large law firm and a lawyer, and he says, Allison, did you hear they're firing half the first years? And I was a first year. So my anxiety took a new toll to a very heightened level because I had made this plan and I based so much on it. And a lot of us do that. We base so much on one thing happening in our life. And when it doesn't happen, we feel that we're doomed. So I spun out of control and I ended up going to all these doctors and nobody could help me. All they could do was give me this little blue pill for my anxiety. Sure. And um, but eventually over time. I heard this beautiful Taoist story, which I share in the book, and it's about this farmer, and he has a horse, and his horse runs away, and his neighbor comes by and says, you have the worst luck, and the farmer says, maybe, and the next day, the horse comes back with five mares, and the neighbor comes by and says to the farmer, you have the best luck, and the farmer says, maybe, and the next day, the farmer's son is on the horse, he falls off and breaks his leg, and the neighbor comes by and says, you have the worst luck. And the farmer says, maybe, but next day the army comes to take his son to war and they can't take him because his lug is broken. And the neighbor comes by and says to the farmer, you have the best luck. And the farmer says, maybe. And it sounds like such a simple story. And in the Taoist tradition, it means things are neither good or bad. They just change. But for me, the minute I heard that, I actually felt a pop in my chest. And for the first time in my life, I felt hope because when something went wrong in my life, I always thought it would never get better. But this whole idea of maybe reminds us all the time that even though it looks bad, even though you can't imagine it changing, life has maybe. Maybe things will get better. Maybe things are good and I can't just see it. Maybe I'll be okay. Maybe I need to wait. And it sounds so simple because it's this little word, but it takes you from this really cramped place in your mind where you're believing that nothing is possible to an open space where you're like, okay, maybe my life can change. Maybe it can improve. And even if we're, as we're having this discussion about the oceans and, and bombings and all these things, it's very difficult sometimes to keep a positive perspective, especially if you're afraid of the unknown. If you're afraid of the unknown, positive thinking, is be, it's almost impossible but with this idea of maybe it always lets you see okay I don't know the answer but maybe there's more hope and you give people hope it changes everything and it gives I'm going to stop you right there because we have to go to a commercial okay. but we're going to talk about maybe when we get back warmed up <laughs> 
Frankie Sense and more will be right back after we pay the bills. I am not the woman I used to be. I'm free with Minister Diane Jones. Monday nights at 10, 9 central on Toginet. This is your chance, ladies, to hear stories of hope and healing from someone who's been there. Someone who has fought back from the horrors of incest. Minister Diane's innocence was stolen from her in the land of alcoholism and mental illness, which led to her being emotionally, physically, and sexually abused by her parents. Yet in spite of this trauma, she has gone on to become a successful wife, mother, registered nurse, and minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not the woman I used to be. I'm Free is a straight-up show to enlighten you and to lighten your load. Do not let the weight of this world or the things that have happened to you control your life. For more on the show and Diane and her book, The Story of Me, email her directly from her show page here on Toginet. Then, join us for I'm Not the Woman I Used to Be, I'm Free, with Minister Diane Jones, Monday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Many men and women drink diet sodas almost on a daily basis because they have zero calories and are thought to be harmless. But the truth is, they are not harmless. The University of Texas found that people who consume just three diet sodas per week were more than 40% more likely to be obese. The artificial sweeteners that are in diet sodas lead to hard-to-control food urges later in the day. Another study by Purdue found that rats who were fed artificial sweeteners prior to mealtime took in more calories. Every once in a while, drinking a diet soda is fine, but if you're having them on a regular and even daily basis, it's time to switch to water or green tea. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. Hey, our gang's still here. Hopefully you are too. We were talking to Allison Carmen about her book, The Gift of Maybe. And Arlie, did you have a point you wanted to make? Um, yeah, that, uh, what I was saying is I, I love the use of maybe because it gives us it gives us a sense of local and feeling like I can make a difference. For example, maybe I just won't take a plastic bag today to carry my milk home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And you can make that decision when you're there on the spot. Can I carry it or do I really want the bag? Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. You know, I, I'm wondering, Allison, if you were the child who watched the movie and said, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? I was just worried about everything. <laughs> <laughs> I have a kid like that. I have a kid who always asks, what's going to happen next? And then today, as a grown-up, like, he's like the most indecisive person. He can't decide. He'll make the decision, and then he'll change his mind again. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just wondered if, if it's a personality type or not. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I know. It just I, I was just a need to know kind of gal, and yeah. it really it wreaks havoc on your life. And I think a lot of us don't even realize we're doing it. It's just we're, we have this habit that the minute the unexpected happens, we project it's going to be bad, and and we don't realize the amount of suffering that we cause. Because if we pretend we know something, we're going to suffer because we yeah. don't know. Well, none of us on this call have any idea what's going to happen tomorrow. No. But no, no. What's interesting about it, though, if you're willing to hang out in the unknown, though, it actually starts to become your best friend. Because the more you're willing to lean into the unknown and say, hey, that's where my life's going to change. That's where we're going to clean the oceans. That's where we're going to fix the problems. So if I could just lean into it and not be so frightened and stay in this maybe place, 
I could possibly be somebody who's going to make a change. So what happens is with this idea, we do cultivate more faith and we do cultivate the ability to hang out in the unknown and hopefully make the changes that we really want to see in the world. I like that. So what's your, what's, what kind of um, exercises do you have in your book? Or is there something there that, that you can share with us that everybody can, can try that are yes. worrying about stuff? Sure. My favorite exercise in the book is actually in chapter one. And I ask people to write down their biggest fear. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it might be they're afraid they're going to lose their job. They're afraid that their child is not going to get into a good college. They're afraid they're not going to be able to pay their mortgage. And then ask yourself, are you absolutely certain that this fear is true? Do you know for sure this is going to happen? Mm-hmm. And most of the time, we're not sure. We're not sure what's going to happen next. We're busy projecting it, but we don't know. So and when you ask yourself the question, most likely your response is going to be, well, no, I don't absolutely know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then at that moment, start asking the maybe questions and start really broad. Maybe what's happening is good. Maybe I should find a new job. Maybe things are going to get better. Maybe I'll be okay no matter what. Maybe I just need to wait and then get more specific. Maybe I need to call my friend Joan. Maybe she knows of somebody who who needs help or maybe I need to take a class. And what happens is that it sounds so simple, but if you do this for 20 minutes, all of a sudden you go from that fearful thought where I'm going to lose my job, things are bad, I'm not going to be able to pay my mortgage to this open place where you recognize, well, there are other possibilities here. Maybe it's not the right job. Maybe there's a new opportunity. Maybe things will get better. So even if you hang on to that fear, you're also right. going to be hanging on to all these other possibilities. And it's going to shift, and you're going to feel better, and you're going to be more present. And as you're more present and more open, life starts to change. I'm wondering, um, Kara or, or Jillian, have, have you ever needed to use the gift of maybe in your life? Can you think? Well, this is Kara, and uh, I am loving what I'm hearing, Allison, because you're speaking so directly to one of the core challenges of an artist. Creativity is often uncomfortable, and it always happens out of the unknown. Yes. Mm-hmm. The reworking of existing things isn't truly creative. And when you were talking about leaning into the unknown, because that's where change happens, mm-hmm. that's where creativity, that's where the things that take people's breath away, that's where that happens. And I love this idea uh, because you do this when you're mixing, you do it when you're putting together things. Well, maybe we ought to put some trombone in here. Uh Maybe we ought to, oh no, actually that sounds like crap. We definitely should not do that. Let's back it up and do something else. This idea I liked very much about the iterative process of thinking through, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And that lets us take things that we're curious about or things that inspire us or things that we're reaching for and actually have, you know, maybe is a great pathway to the choices that can bring those things into being. I'm loving hearing this. Well said. Yeah, well said. Yeah, you said it beautifully because I think that's why we we aren't as creative in our lives. It's just we're so busy hanging on to the known because we want to feel safe and we don't realize that this wanting the known is limiting. Our, we're limiting ourselves because we're just repeating the past. We're repeating what we think is going to be best, but really the only way to live to our fullest potential and be the most creative person we can be is, like we said, to lean into the unknown, lean into the maybe, and see what else is possible for us in our lives. And Jillian, I'm so glad that you took maybe to creativity because, you know, and, Allison. And my, or Allison, I'm so sorry. And oh the, no, I'm sorry. That was Kara. Kara, <laughs> <laughs> <Kara's> boy. <laughs> okay. Um, but the the point being is that you know, 
it is through creativity that we are going to learn how to save our oceans, mm -hmm. to change our environments, and to change the way we approach our lives. And maybe equals creativity. I love that. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for me, because I, I wrote the book on the prescription of change, I love the unknown. And I try to bring people into that with me because I really do love that space. But I can understand people who need to have the security of, you know, what's going to happen next. And, and so this gift of maybe is really the perfect bridge, really is the perfect bridge for them to explore. There are many people, my mother included, who really were, you know, leaned to the default of negative. And her, it was always chicken little, chicken little, you know, but that, it could happen. It could happen. Yeah, it could happen. But the other could happen, too. You know, so it, 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 when, when you have a personality like mine, which is always leaning to the positive, it was very difficult to kind of grow up with somebody who was so negative and, and that, the neg that this bad stuff was always going to happen. But this is perfect because now it, it, it allows those people to, to come into a space that is neither, um, it's more positive and it's not negative. And it's like, maybe, maybe, you know, the worst that could happen, maybe. But maybe the best is going to happen. You don't know. I have a, you know, so I know people who that will go to the negative because they're, you know, they really want the positive, but the disappointment is less if they already think the bad is going to happen. Do you know what about that, Allison? Well, well, yeah. Well, first of all, it it's even it's even deeper than that. They're just so afraid they're not okay. I mean, basically, that's why we, we think the worst, because we just can't imagine if we don't know that everything could still work out. And so I think a lot of people who um, want to hedge from disappointment, that they also have the, the same type of fear and maybe really works for them because they see that they could they don't have to lock in. They don't have to lock in to be, you know, we suffer because we think life has to be one way. The minute you recognize that it could be OK many different ways, uh -huh. then people aren't hedging as much against the disappointment because they're recognizing, well, I didn't get that job. It's not game over. Right. I, make your child didn't make the play. It's not game over. So then these people are going to say, okay, I could deal with life better. It has twists and turns, but it doesn't mean I'm not going to get to my goal or it doesn't mean that things can't still work out in my life. So it gives exactly. constant hope. And, uh, it, and like, it's like a platform, a little platform for people to stand on. So life's a little less scary. Yeah. I think we, we are trained to believe that there's only one potential pathway instead of realizing that there is a myriad of possibilities. Right. Right. And you have to be willing to hang out though in the unknown to, to do that. And like we said before on break, there are people who have faith that are just okay, whatever happens in life, or they have religious beliefs that give them, you know, the ability to just go with the flow. But for the rest of us, if you know we're afraid of the unknown, we're, we're going to need something to help us along so we could kind of go with the ebb and flow of life. I think that we're going to, um, Allison, that well said, really well said. Let's, let's, let's play Kara's song. Let's play her song, Willow. And then we're going to come back and we're going to talk to her in a moment. I think it's a really good time to play it. We've got a few minutes before break and let's put ourselves in a new space. Well 
along the stream that runs to sea. Listen to my plea. Listen, willow, and weep for me. On my lover's dream, lovely summer dream, gone to leave me here to weep my tears into the stream. Sad as I can be. Well, that's the beautiful silky voice of Kara Radis. And we're going to be going to a commercial break, but. 90 cents and more. We'll be right back after we pay the bills. Secret Cuisines and Sacred Rituals is a quest, a place, and a feast. Join host Vilasi Venkatachalam every week to explore myths, mystique, old medicine, and brilliant modern solutions through a dazzling kaleidoscope of cuisines, cultures, and cures. This is the place where tribes gather, strangers and familiars, to be memory keepers and makers of our evolving, enduring, evergreen, spoken legacy of wisdom and ingenuity. In Velocity's words, when we do old things in new ways and new things in old ways, we paint with an inspired palette, weave our own healing traditions, and become our own guru. Vilasi is a troubadour of secret cuisines and sacred rituals. She collects stories of wisdom in 
ingenuity and grit. She believes wellness and transformation happen when you stand at the threshold of delight and discovery. She displays her hidden penchant for drama when she leads the safari at the supper club. Her favorite pastime is to extol the marvels of cuisines, cultures, and cures. To her audience in workplaces, seminars, and salons, her mantra is, be your own guru. She is a biochemist, botanist, and alchemist who likes to churn delightful, useful things from a brew of art and science, ancient and evolving, old medicine and new cures. Join Velocity every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, only here on the WooHoo Radio Network. It's Merging If you're like me, when you finish dining at a restaurant, you hate waiting and waiting for the check to arrive so you can pay and get on with your day. I admit my rocket, as my kids call it, starts going off, and my husband always wants one more cup of coffee, and I'm ready to go, wiki, wiki, let's go. It's not that I'm tense. I'm just terribly alert. My husband always has a cup of coffee in his hand, so much so he is wearing out the handles of our coffee mugs. But then again, he's not as bad as the French writer Voltaire, who drank 70 cups of coffee a day. I can't drink coffee before going to bed because I get too wadgety. My husband, on the other hand, can drink several cups of joe and go right to sleep. And I'm not talking slum gullion. That's weak coffee. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my new app, Too Funny for Words. Well, we're back, and I hope that you enjoyed Willow Wheat for Me. That was Kara Radis who was singing that beautiful song in her absolutely beautiful voice. She has uh, she sings the blues and jazz standards. She loves music from the 20s and the 30s. She has performed in Paris and Glasgow and all throughout the United States. And she was just telling us off air that she started when she was 16 years old, playing in Louisiana and Texas. And uh, we can see how that, uh, that would happen. Welcome. Kara, thank you. Thank love, you. lovely, lovely sound. Now, you said some of your early influences were, tell us who they were. Uh, actually, I grew up listening to a lot of classical music at home. And uh, I left home quite early when I was 16. And while I was, I actually was going to university at Texas A&M. And I there I had a, another student in the dorm who had this amazing collection of old 78 records. And you know everybody else was listening to Deep Purple Smoke on the Water mm-hmm. and you know a, a lot of they were listening to Led Zeppelin and this What gal, year was this? <laughs> this was in the 70s. Okay, yeah. And, okay. and this gal had all these old records and this old old record player and she was listening to music from the 30s and 40s and it was stuff i had never heard and from some of the very first songs bessie smith and you know even stuff that was before billy holiday really old louis armstrong stuff in this really scratchy scratchy old tunes um jack teagarden who was an amazing trombonist who actually invented the spit valve on the trombone, who was also a Texas guy. A lot of this music was very popular in Texas, in Louisiana, 
all through the South and then in the Chicago area, Kansas City. And this gal had an amazing collection. And pretty soon, any time I wasn't studying, I was over at her room listening. And it just felt like coming home. Mm-hmm. And it opened up something in my soul. And one of the things that I often say about music is that music is my mood-altering drug of choice. Yeah. And that's really true for, for me. For all of us, really, I think. I agree. And, and tell, us, tell us again, during the break you were talking about how Willow came about and what your inspiration was. Tell us that again sure, so that the sure. audience can hear that. Uh, So Willow Weep for Me was a song that was written by Anne Ronell, a songwriter who did a lot of Hollywood stuff and some very nice standards in the 1930s. And at the time that I was thinking about recording this song, I was also thinking about how many universal themes there are in this place of maybe that Allison was talking about, in the place of nourishment of our spirits that we kind of framed our conversation today with, how many common themes there are in that. And during that time, I heard another song that was by a Spanish composer, Manuel de Falla, called Asturiana. And it's actually kind of an operatic-sounding piece. And it's written in Spanish. And In the Spanish lyric, this person says, I was sad and I was crying. And so I went to the forest and I sat by a pine tree and I cried and the pine tree cried. And we go for nourishment to places in nature. And the way that Jillian goes to the ocean, the way that, you know, different people go to find solace and comfort. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is the exact same story as Willow Weep for me. And so I actually worked with Tom Disher, a composer here in San Francisco, to weave the themes, the musical themes of Astoriana into the background of Willow Weep for me, which is why the accompaniment of this sounds different than a lot of the kind of swingy versions of it that you'll hear. And as I sing it, I think, what would it be like if I were at the end of my life looking back, gone my summer dream, lovely summer dream, gone to leave me here to weep my tears into the stream? That's the stripped out ocean with no fish left in it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's the mountains of plastic. That's the anxiety where we can't reach the maybe. Right. And because we sing that song, we also have the awareness that we could choose something different now. We could take this moment and we could make a different choice that doesn't leave us sitting there crying by the stream at the end of our life. That's what I think about when I sing that song. And that's why, along with solace and comfort, it's in the way that singing blues gives you solace and comfort. Mm -hmm. It's also about inspiration and hope. Well, I really hope that everybody who listened to that and now listens to your description thinks about that choice that they can make. You know, my, my... Other show, I Changed the World, you know, is about people who, who ask themselves, what can I do? I'm only one person. The things that you can do are those choices that you make. You don't buy that can of tuna or eat that shrimp or, you know, throw plastic out or drink from plastic. You just don't do it. And yeah, you're one person, but then, you know, maybe you encourage another person and another person and eventually um, we all do it. Because if we don't start with one, the power of one, we don't go anywhere. 
Mm. So it's very important. Very, very important. Now, I want to talk about you also play the troubadour harp and you're studying to play harp for hospice patients. That's interesting. Yeah, you know, actually, that's kind of a showstopper at a cocktail party, you know, when people <laughs> say, what do you do? And, and you say, well, I'm studying to play harp for the dying. The, the room gets really quiet around you and people think, I'm going to go get something to eat. <laughs> so it actually, it, you know, when you think about transformation, uh, whether it's about the oceans or whether it's about anxiety or whether it's about end of life, we have the choice of how we're going to approach it. And there is a conscious way and a not-so-conscious way, just like all the things that we've been talking about mm -hmm. today. So a troubadour harp is a harp that doesn't have pedals on it. Okay. And it's called a troubadour harp because people could strap them on their back and go from one castle to another and be the bard who told the news and sang songs about what was going on in other parts of the world. And one of the things about a harp is that you can't make an ugly sound with a harp. It's a very gentle sound. You know, you can only make an icky sound if you knock it over. Mm -hmm. And so when you're in a therapeutic place like hospice with people who are in pain, the music can bring them into a place of ease, a mm -hmm. place of solace. It can bring them into where they can lean into the unknown. And it's amazing when you're sitting by the bedside and you're playing, uh, seeing people's bodies relax and their faces relax in a way where they can engage with this process they're in without so much fear, without so much pain. It feels like a privilege to do that work. You know, Jillian was talking earlier about how it feels like such a cool thing to show up and do the work that she does mm -hmm. in the world. Uh, Allison, with your book, I'm sure that you feel the same way. And Frankie, you clearly have a mission that I can admire in what you're doing here. I feel that same way about music and about playing the harp. Mm -hmm. I can totally see that. I wish that people could see me because my head's nodding. I'm like a bobbing doll <laughs> in the back of this car. <laughs> like, like it's radio. They can't see you. I totally agree. Everything you said, I can totally see them, their bodies relax. I can totally see them go into a, a different space, you know, and think about, um, because, you know, in hospice, there's so many nurses have said that, that it, it's not a, a depressing place. It's actually, um, you know, a lot of solace comes to people as they, as they're going to die and they're okay with it. And, yeah. and, uh, it's peaceful. Yeah, and just connecting with the reality and the truth of mm -hmm. where you're at. It's very honest. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're in the hospital or you're in a in the middle of a medical system that is basically saying, we're just a fix forward, we're just going to keep fixing things. By the time that you get to hospice, that's not true. That's where everybody is saying the truth is that there is no cure for death. Mm-hmm. And that everybody's going to be part of this. And so Everybody. you can choose how you're going to engage. And because it's such a true and honest world, great transformation and acceptance can happen. And that's just healing for everybody. It is. And, and you know, it takes that fear of death away, too, I think. You know, when, yeah. when people are peaceful and they tell you, I'm sure, you know, they'll tell you eventually if they haven't already that... Um, 
maybe they've already been to the other side. Maybe they've seen, mm-hmm. you know, things and it's just really a peaceful, wonderful experience. And I can see how your voice and that harp would just make it all just like, ah, I can go now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So it's very calming. Mm-hmm. So in fact, your voice and the harp uh, sort of gives people the feeling that angels have arrived. Yeah, I would think. <laughs> I would think. Thank you for that, Arlie. <laughs> so um, aside from the hospice work that you're doing, where, where, what's up for you? What's up for you, Kara? Where are you playing? How can people listen to you, find you, buy your stuff? I am. Uh, you can check out my music on iTunes. Uh, I have a CD out there called Weaver of Dreams, oh. and I'm working on a new recording now, uh, putting together a series of tracks that have to do the the idea of it is that music interacts. Music isn't it's. Uh, it always is interacting with the environment around, and so it has a lot to do with the collaboration of all of the musicians. And some of them are tracks that I've written, and some of them are tracks from these 1930s songs that I am so passionate about. I've only got a minute here, so I just want to stop you. I'm sorry. And first of all, Alison Carmen, her book is The Gift of Maybe, available on Amazon, I'm sure. Go there and go to her website. And uh, Allison, are you still with us? Yes, I am. You give out give out your website really quickly, please. It's AllisonCarmen.com. Easy, <laughs> easy. And we're gonna go buy her book. You're gonna go buy um, Kara's CD. And I want to thank each and every one of you, Jillian. Thank you so much for coming. And Arlie, thank you again for riding shotgun with me on this show today. As always, you are so precious, and I love Aww, you. Thank you. I love you, too. I will see you, every one of you, I hope, next week on Frankie Sense and More. Right. <laughs> and join me Thanks, for my new Frank. show, Mission Unstoppable, on, on Tuesdays at 1. Take care. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye now. Turn the world